From Louisiana to Washington, Texas to Ohio, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, many states across the nation will be electing a governor on November 8th. John Gizzi of Newsmax joins us with a look at the key races. Party control of the United States Senate is up for grabs, and races in competitive states have gotten tighter. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story on U.S. Senate races in Pennsylvania and Arizona. Is the federal regulatory state growing? Eric Baim of Reason Magazine finds out from Wayne Cruz of the Competitive Enterprise Institute which just released its 10,000 Commandments report. And it has been 30 years since a movement began to implement a taxpayer bill of rights in each state. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has a progress report. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Most of the attention has been on U.S. Senate races, but many states will also be electing a governor on November 8th. John Gizzi is chief political correspondent and chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. He is here to look at the key gubernatorial races. John, welcome back to American Radio Journal. John, as we look at governor races around the country, Republicans are being challenged in a number of states, but looks like they are going to Hold on. What states look like hold states for Republicans? Well, certainly Arizona and Arkansas, where Republican governors are termed out, and two very charismatic women are currently favored to move into the statehouse. Carrie Lake, former TV anchor in Arizona, and of course, former White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders in Arkansas. So I would put those definitely in the hold column. In addition, we're seeing some other states where governors are relinquishing the top job and should be succeeded by fellow Republicans. But those two are the likeliest to stay in the Republican camp. A number of high-profile Republican governors are up for re-election. Florida and Texas come to mind. How are those governors looking? Ron DeSantis had his last and first debate, his only debate, with former Governor Charlie Crist. This comes at a time that DeSantis has double-digit leads over Crist, a Republican-turned-Democrat, and has raised more than $180 million. Hold on to your hats. I think he may have a little change after the election, and he knows exactly how to spend it. In addition, we are seeing Governor Abbott of Texas, like DeSantis, under fire for his hardline approach to illegal immigrants coming into the Lone Star State facing Beto O'Rourke former Democratic congressman who nearly unseated Senator Ted Cruz four years ago. It's closer than the Florida race, but all signs are Abbott will go on to win and become Texas's longest-serving governor. Are there any states where Republicans currently hold the governorship, John, that Democrats look to flip and pick up in this cycle? Well, the obvious state that comes to mind is Maryland, where Dan Cox, 
state legislator closely associated with Donald Trump beat the hand-picked successor of retiring Governor Larry Hogan. And Hogan, in turn, will not support Mr. Cox in the general election. All this means that Wes Moore, best-selling author and Democrat and political newcomer, should go on to become the first black governor of the free state. And in Massachusetts, where Governor Charlie Baker, a moderate to liberal Republican, is stepping down, uh, the Democratic candidate, State Attorney General Maura Healey, is a big favorite over conservative Republican Gerald Deal. Overall, those are the two that are likely to go from R to D. Now, the list of states that are likely or possibly going to go from D to R is considerably longer. So let's spend the rest of our time talking about those states, John. What states do Republicans look to flip? And a couple of these might be considered surprising to most listeners. Well, I certainly think Illinois would be a surprise. That has moved increasingly into the Democratic column. It's considered a blue state. And its governor, Governor Pritzker, is a liberal Democrat. Republican State Senator Darren Bailey is unabashedly an anti-tax, pro-life, pro-gun Republican. It hasn't seemed to hurt because the race has gotten into single digits right now. I also would say ditto for Michigan. Tudor Dixon, former steel company executive and television commentator, was the surprise winner of the Republican nomination. She is now within single digits of Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, this is from uh, both the Trafalgar poll that leans to Republicans and a Democratic poll that just came out recently. Overall, it looks like the race is going to go down to the wire, and the Detroit News just endorsed Dixon. I have to say that Nevada, which went Democratic down the line, may elect a Republican governor and senator this year just because the trend is going the opposite way. Governor Steve Sishlock, a narrow winner in 2018, is trailing in the polls to Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo, Republican. Uh, that would be a very big gain for the Republicans. And the big enchilada, New York, or the Big Apple, as New Yorkers used to like to call it, who would believe that Kathy Hochul, Democratic governor, would have a four-point lead in a recent poll to Republican House member Lee Zeldin? Uh, the issue of crime is very big, and the economy is very big. I was just in New York to be at an event hosted by the smaller New York Conservative Party, which has given its line to Congressman Zeldin. They're very excited about the possible outcome of the race. And in Oregon, a three-way race is going on. One angry liberal Democrat decided to run as an independent, and that may lead to Christine Drazen, a moderate to conservative Republican, becoming that state's first Republican governor in 20 years. If that is the case, then Katie, bar the door. It's going to be a big Republican year for state houses. And that means all that patronage, all those state employees, 
going to help the Republican nominee for president in 2024. What's happening down in Georgia, John? It's quite interesting. In the race for the Senate, everyone is talking about Raphael Warnick and Herschel Walker, and we forget there's a governorship up there. But Republican Governor Bruce Kemp, a narrow winner in a disputed race, faces a rematch with Democrat Stacey Abrams, who, by the way, always disputed the fact that she was the loser in 2018. Now she's back, and most polls give a five to seven point lead to Governor Kemp. Few doubt he will win the November race without a runoff. And then if the Senate race goes to a runoff, Governor Kemp will be there to help Republican Herschel Walker. We have been talking with John Gizzi. John, of course, is the chief political correspondent and White House correspondent for Newsmax. John, if we have listeners who would like to read more about all these races, read your columns in Newsmax and all the other coverage that Newsmax offers, where can they find that online? www.newsmax.com. John Gizzi on politics here on American Radio Journal. John, thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure. At the Club for Growth, Scott Parkinson continues to track what are very competitive, very close U.S. Senate races around the country. We're going to talk about a couple of them today. Scott, good to have you here. Thanks for having me back, Loman. Let's start out with Pennsylvania, the Keystone State, happens to be the headquarters for American Radio Journal, and also site of one of the most competitive U.S. Senate races in the country, Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman. What is the lay of the land right now in the Keystone State, Scott? The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is ground zero for the Senate majority on on either side. I think that right now we're in a, a really, really close battle between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz. The bottom line is that there's a lot of partisan voters throughout the state, and then there's people that are a little bit undecided and uncertain about these candidates. Who exactly is Mehmet Oz other than a TV celebrity? And with John Fetterman, obviously his health issues remain to be in the spotlight. They had a big debate this week in Pennsylvania where Fetterman utilized closed captioning in order to read the questions from the debate moderators and also to, to engage with Mehmet Oz. And I think that he was struggling and, and his disability from the stroke that he suffered earlier this year is evident. John Fetterman, if he becomes a United States senator, is going to really struggle to do the typical duties that a United States senator does on the, on the Senate floor. And somebody this week tweeted, oh, you know, a senator doesn't do anything other than vote yes or vote no. And quite honestly, that's not the job description of a United States senator. There's a lot of big, important roles for a senator to do when it comes to committee hearings, when it comes to debate and advice and consent with nominations in the executive branch, the way that you're uh, communicating on behalf of the American people and on behalf of your state is a is a way that you can differentiate between who's an effective senator and who's not. And I think when Pennsylvanians get down to it on November 8th, and obviously early voting is a big, big issue as well, they're going to be looking at John Fetterman and having second thoughts. Maybe they've got second thoughts about Mehmet Oz on some of the policy positions that are maybe not as clear as, as we know how radical John Fetterman is. But when you've got this radicalism, when you've also got him clearly struggling from the stroke, I think that it's going to make Mehmet Oz the United States Senator from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. 
and it's ultimately going to deliver a United States Senate majority for the Republicans. Well, the polls are essentially even in that race. It is going to be watched closely on election night. Another state, Scott, where Republicans have high hopes is the state of Arizona. What's happening there? Yeah, well, this week we saw the prognosticators shift that from lean Democrat to a toss-up race. Really, over the last month, Blake Masters is closing the gap in Arizona. We think that that race is incredibly tight right now. He's been up against a really a gargantuan fundraiser when it comes to Mark Kelly and how much the Democrats poured into that state. But uh, there have been a bunch of other groups that have been supporting Masters over the last six weeks, Heritage Action, and their super PAC have been involved in a big way for Masters. And that's helped tighten the gap. And then I think also the fact that people are paying more attention to the candidates and the races. When you're, when you're more aware of, of what's going on, then you start to decide. And obviously, the polling is a snapshot of where we are in, in that moment, right? It's usually a three-day poll. And for a statewide race, they want to probably do about 1,000 people to get a sample correct in their methodology. But the bottom line is, as you build a campaign, you're working to persuade these middle-of-the-ground, gettable voters, the people that haven't made up their mind yet. And I think that's what Blake Masters is targeting right now. He's doing a good job getting out there and getting his message across to Arizonans all across the board that Mark Kelly is simply a vote for Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer, and he's not this blue dog, mavericky type of John McCain candidate. He is a clear partisan Democrat. Do you sense, Scott, as we look at Arizona-Pennsylvania races all around the country, that at the moment races are tightening? Is this normal, or is this a situation where momentum has really shifted strongly in favor of Republicans? Well, actually, I think it's both, right? I think it is normal for the races to get closer. And, you know, we had polling out there. We were kind of in rock bottom in the middle of September following the impact of the Dobbs decision on abortion following energy prices that had gone up so high, but we're starting to come back down. And now we're seeing energy prices go back up. And, and there's a lot of predictions that the energy crisis is going to continue and really spiral out of control in November after the election. So Republicans are, are closing the gap. They're, they're up on TV. They're running their campaigns. And I think that we've got strong candidates up and down the aisle. This has been a big talking point of Rick Scott, who's leading the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Republicans have interesting stories to share, whether it's Herschel Walker, whether it's Adam Laxalt or Blake Masters or Mehmet Oz or Ted Budd in North Carolina, Marco Rubio in Florida. These guys have authentic stories, and I don't think that they're just cookie-cutter Republicans or cookie-cutter radical Democrats like the progressive left wants to put forward with their nominees. We are just days away from the November general election, and we will continue to track all of this with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, a few words about the club. The Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. If anybody wants to learn about the candidates that we're supporting, check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll check in with you next week. Okay, thank you. The Competitive Enterprise Institute has released its annual 10,000 Commandments Report, which tracks the size of the federal regulatory state. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from Wayne Cruz of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. 
The federal regulatory state costs about $2 trillion annually, and nobody out there does a better job of tracking the length and breadth and cost of the federal regulatory state than my guest today. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. That guest is Wayne Cruz. He is a senior fellow and the vice president for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute at CEI, and he just today, CEI, has published their latest 10 10,000 Commandments Report. It's their annual look at the regulatory state. It's uh, something that they've been doing every year since 1993. That was 28 years ago. So let that fact just rattle around in your brain. (laughs) Wayne, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. We love to do this report. I guess love is the wrong word, but we do a good job officially in Washington of tracking what the federal government spends and how big its debt is, even if we can't tolerate those. There's less knowledge about the scope of the regulatory state. So way back then when I started this report, I thought, well, we need something that kind of looks like the historical tables for the federal budget and gets a grasp of the costs and trends and numbers of pages in the federal register and numbers of rules in play, numbers of final rules. So I started doing this report and we get traction with it because I think it's really important that we pay attention to the hidden tax of regulation because if you're missing regulation, you're missing the biggest part of what government is doing probably. It might spend $6 trillion a year, but remember, all of that spending is on various programs in economic intervention, environment and health, social, and especially after COVID, lots of reset and build back better type spending, and new spending in infrastructure, new spending in innovation, new so- spending on so-called inflation remedies and things like that. So you can see that stuff, that spending is going to trickle down and become part of the driver of the future regulatory state, just as past gargantuan spending programs that were transformative have led to the regulatory state we have now. So that's why I think it's important to track it. If that makes sense, one of the crazy things about the state we're in, you know, we talk about restoring authority to Congress and having only Congress write the laws as Article One of the Constitution holds, federal regulators now are putting out 20 times, 20 rules for every law that Congress puts out. In other words, last year there were over 3,000 regulations, but Congress passed and the president signed around 140 laws. So you see the biggest lawmakers are the unelected bureaucracy rather than Congress itself. I think the real value of this report is is exactly that. It is a snapshot in every year of the regulatory state, but it is now you guys have been doing it for so long that you put all those snapshots together and you do get a nice historical trend. It's always interesting. I mean, it's interesting to look at this every single year, but it is especially interesting to me to look at it in years like this because this is it's the second year of the Biden administration, but for all intents and purposes, this report looks at the first full year of the new administration. And so you can see some sort of broad trends, some shifts in priorities and, and that's especially true when you go from Republican to Democratic administration, as we just did. Give me sort of the big picture here. What has changed since Biden took over? It's a big change, Eric. And you might recall, we spoke about this a year or so ago in the 2021 edition of 10,000 Commandments. We did a big framing of the deregulatory successes of the Trump administration, but we also had to counter those with the discordant stuff that he did that was amplifying regulation in areas like trade and drug price controls and things like that. The big, big change under Biden, and this is his own phrase, is whole of government, W-H-O-L-E, whole of, well, I would say whole, H-O-L-E, but, but whole of government 
regulatory transformations in climate crisis, in equity, in competition policy, in long COVID, in digital currency, and so on down the line. I would say Biden's whole-of-government regulatory agenda, where he's enlisting all of the agencies in the pursuit of progressive aims, is the big change. And one of the leading triggers for it was a, a memorandum he put out at the very beginning of the administration called Modernizing Regulatory Review. And we had one body in Washington at the OMB that was charged with oversight and looking at costs and benefits of regulations. Now, at this point, that body at OMB that's supposed to be doing oversight is instead enlisted in helping pursue these benefits as progressives see them. So we really don't have any regulatory supervision left that's, uh, that's got teeth in it. We're talking with Wayne Cruz. He is the vice president for policy and a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and he's the author of the annual 10,000 Commandments Report, which was just published. You can find that at CEI.org. Wayne, just a, a minute or so left here, but uh, this is a, a big question. I'm not going to give you a lot of time to answer it, but if Republicans take control of Congress, it looks like they may after the midterms. Give me one or two things here that they should look to do. I mean, I, I'd love to just like abolish the regulatory state. That's not super realistic. What, what should they do instead? I think what a new Congress could do, it will need to tee things up for a president who is different from Biden, who would be favorable to regulatory reform. But we can do things that enhance disclosures and transparencies that would make that possible. I've considered Biden to be like the Edward Scissorhands of disclosure. I've seen a lot of the regulatory disclosures get muted by him. So what I would have Congress do is reestablish things like Trump had done, like the guidance document portal. I mentioned to you there are 100, 140 laws, 3,000 regulations, but, but Eric, agencies are putting out tons and tons of guidance documents and bulletins and notices and circulars. That kind of thing is going to be governed not by laws or regulations, but just by decrees, just by guidance documents. So I think reestablishing a portal and transparency for guidance documents on top of regulation Given that we're going to be in a situation where we can't get anything other than transparency enacted, it's hard to fight against transparency. I would start with that because then that's going to create some of the ammo in a way like I hope 10,000 Commandments does uh, for the future. But that's going to create some ammo by which a future administration that would be pro-regulatory reform, that gives a chance to do some reforms which the last time it happened was back in the 90s. Fascinating stuff here. I mean, 10,000 commandments. Uh, it could take us 10,000 hours probably to go through the whole thing. We are unfortunately out of time for today, but thanks for taking some time with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And again, that is Wayne Cruz. He is a senior fellow and uh, vice president for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Check out their new report, the new 10,000 commandments report at CEI.org. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Check out our coverage of the regulatory state, everything else going on in D.C. and around the country at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. It is known as the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR a vehicle for restraining state government spending and keeping taxes as low as possible. The concept has been around for 30 years, and Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has a progress report on this American Radio Journal commentary. November 3rd, 2022 marks the 30th anniversary of Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights, many times known by its acronym of TABOR, as one of the best-known pieces of ALEC model policy, TABOR has provided a gold standard for state tax and expenditure limits, or TELS, returning billions of dollars to hardworking Colorado taxpayers over the past 30 years. 
Despite the unrelenting political attacks from the tax and spend opponents of Tabor, as well as appalling judicial activism from Colorado courts, Tabor has withstood the test of time and continues to provide important protection for hardworking Colorado taxpayers. What's Tabor all about? Well, let's start with the basics. Tabor is a state constitutional amendment that was approved by Colorado voters in 1992. It limits the amount of revenue the state of Colorado lawmakers can retain and spend to a reasonable formula of population plus inflation growth. If the state government collects more tax dollars than Tabor allows, the money is automatically returned to taxpayers as a Tabor refund. If any public agency in Colorado intends to spend surplus revenue, increase taxes or fees, or increase debt, it must place the proposed measure on the ballot and get approval from voters. The ballot measures must clarify how the funds will be raised and allocated. It is the nexus between expenditure for a government program and the required transparency as taxpayers consider approving the measure, and this explains a large part of the success of Tabor over these 30 years. For decades, academic researchers have promoted the benefits of having an institutional constraint on the growth of government like Tabor. Taxes can still be increased, but it takes a vote of the people to do so. Following the low tax plus limited government formula, Colorado developed into one of the nation's most competitive business climates in the years following Tabor's adoption. Between years 1997 and 2007 alone, Colorado taxpayers received $6.7 billion in Tabor-provided tax relief. The economic growth followed, as Colorado boasted one of the most competitive and fastest-growing economies in the nation during those years. At the time of its approval, then-Governor Roy Romer condemned Tabor, claiming it would cause businesses to flee the state and the economy to collapse. Well, some things never change. Every year, progressives launch similar attacks against Tabor, and in some years, they've introduced ballot measures to rescind or water down Tabor. This year, the left-wing Denver Post is going after Tabor again, urging legislators to, quote, scrap the antiquated Tabor refund mechanism and find a more equitable way to treat Colorado taxpayers, unquote. However, it is likely because of the protection of Tabor that businesses haven't fled Colorado at the same rate that we see in tax and spend states all across the country, like California, Illinois, and New York. The progressive attacks are simply an acknowledgement of the danger that Tabor presents to those that would like an unconstrained ability to grow government. In fact, many states face the same threat by simply not having any sort of tax and expenditure limitation. Though all states but Bernie Sanders, Vermont, have some sort of a balanced budget requirement, not all states have a protection like Tabor. In fact, the vast majority do not. Taxing and spending may not be out of control now in Colorado, but it only takes one future generation of budget crafters to change that. For Colorado, that generation has been held bay by the resiliency of the taxpayer's Bill of Rights. This year alone, the Colorado General Assembly announced a taxpayer rebate of $3.6 billion in surplus revenue that will go to hardworking taxpayers as they battle back record-breaking inflation. Even in the face of this tremendous economic success story, progressives have spent tremendous resources trying to demonize Tabor in Colorado. Fully documenting the disingenuous attacks against Tabor could take years. Why are the so-called progressives so scared of Tabor? 
It's simply because constitutional spending limitation in the model of Tabor restricts the wild spending increases which fund their constituency, which is, of course, big government. And while these politically motivated attacks on Tabor will undoubtedly continue, the bottom line is that Tabor remains the gold standard for states looking to provide a meaningful way to protect their hardworking taxpayers from out-of-control taxes and spending. To see how a tax and expenditure limitation could benefit your state, visit our new website at fiscalrules.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WWNCAM in Asheville, North Carolina, along with KKEAAM and KHKAAM in Honolulu, Hawaii. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on our program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.